The citadel of Aleppo in northern Syria is one of the great fortresses of all history. Continuously improved over a 3,000 year period, it sat at the meeting point in conflicts between armies from the ancient Hittites to Alexander the Great, the Byzantines, and the Mamluks. Unfortunately, this site has been closed down by the savage fighting in Syria's civil war. That civil war and the destruction it has wrecked on Aleppo could be said to embody everything that's wrong in the Arab world today. It involves an oppressive regime, a barbaric terrorist group, ISIS, and ordinary citizens caught in between. But a thousand years earlier, Aleppo was also on the front lines of the great conflict of its time, a centuries-long war between Byzantine and Muslim armies that spawned legendary epic battle poems, but at the same time flourished as a center of Islamic, intellectual, and artistic life. While the famed warrior Saif al-Dawla, the emir of Aleppo, led battles against the Byzantines, he also sponsored gatherings of some of the greatest poets to ever write in the Arabic language, as well as the works of some great Muslim philosophers who worked hand-in-hand with Christians to reconcile the ideas of the pagan Greeks with monotheism, and who would go on to inspire both Latin Christian thinkers and Arab Muslim thinkers. Therefore, the change that has occurred cannot be due solely to the political fortunes or the existence of conflict or military defeats, as Aleppo would be captured and sacked and recaptured throughout the turbulent period in which Muslim science and philosophy continued to advance. So, the answers lie elsewhere. Today, we're going to look at Aleppo is an example of some of the great flourishing of the Islamic military, the arts, and philosophy in a time of great conflict. So please, stay with us. Welcome back. Since 750 AD, the Abbasid Empire had been the most powerful state in the world. We've talked about it a great deal in the past few episodes, with Baghdad as the center of that world empire. It inherited from the Umayyads the largest land empire the world had seen up to that point, and even though this would begin to decrease in size somewhat with the establishment of the Abbasid Caliphate, it still was the strongest and most economically, scientifically advanced empire that the world had seen. Well, just over a century later, as we discussed in our last episode, the Abbasid Caliphate had been shaken by what is now called the Anarchy at Samarra. Now that name is somewhat misleading, because even though it refers to the capital of the empire at that time, it really had shockwaves that went throughout the empire. The Abbasids had relied on their power base in northeastern Iran and their Persian allies. But as happened with the Umayyads, the willingness of the Khalifs to use local rulers and imported military played a huge role in their ability to govern conquered territories, but would also play a huge role in their eventual downfall. Well, we discussed this a lot in our previous episode. 
The fact that the Khalif El Ma'mun, perhaps the most powerful and certainly one of the greatest Khalifs, relied on Turkish warriors to build his power base. Well, the Turks would continue to grow in power, and they would play an ever-expanding role in the military and also the civil administration. While El Mamun was able to balance off the power of these Turkish generals and still keep his hand firmly on control, his successors were not. In our last episode, we discussed the last really powerful caliph, and that was El Mutawakal. He was the one who tried to assert his power as caliph against the Turkish generals. If you remember, they executed him in very public style and left no doubt who was running things. Well, the anarchy at Samara, which we refer to, the nine-year period which saw the murder of four caliphs at the hands of competing Turkish military officials, including al-Mutawakal himself, put the empire into turmoil. The Arabic term here is fitna, which means riot or discord. Well, although the caliphate was restored by 870 and would move back to Baghdad, it would never have the same central authority as before. The local leaders, seeing the weakness at the center, took advantage of it, and they either attained independence or virtual autonomy, like the Safarids in Afghanistan and Iran. Egypt became largely independent, as did many other city-states throughout the empire, particularly in Syria and Iraq, where emirs, which is really the Arabic word for princes, ruled, in reality, almost independently. Of course, they gave lip service to the caliph and still acknowledged him, but they essentially established dynasties of their own. One of the most powerful of these was the city of Aleppo which is in northern Syria. And this lies on the front lines of the struggle between the Byzantines and the Muslims. As we have discussed that on-again, off-again war that had gone on for centuries, you remember the front lines kept shifting back from somewhere in modern-day Turkey to when the Byzantines were winning all the way into Iraq itself. And if you just look at a map... Those lines are sweeping back and forth across northern Syria, and that put Aleppo really in the front line of this conflict. Well, this city would emerge as one of the strongest of these independent powers. Aleppo was actually ruled by a Shiite dynasty, a succession of Shiite emirs, for about a century, although the city was lost and recaptured multiple times from the Byzantines over that period. This family was known as the Hamdanids, and we'll see this a lot when you look throughout Islamic history, although you can look at a map and still see a large swathe that says Abbasid Empire. When we drill down, we see that there are essentially independent dynasties in all these many cities, and Aleppo was one of the most powerful of these. Its greatest ruler was a man named Ali ibn Abu al-Hajja Abdullah ibn Hamdan but he was known by his nom de guerre as Saif al-Dawla. Now that means sword of the state. The word Saif, meaning sword, leaves no doubt that this man wanted to be remembered as a warrior, and he was. Although Saif al-Dawla would be lauded for his heroic military campaigns against the Byzantines, that's not why he is remembered today. In fact, he probably would have been forgotten to most people 
except for the fact that this frontline warrior also sponsored a flourishing center of arts and letters in his city. Even though this city was subject to frequent conquest, looting, and reconquest, he still sponsored some of the best poets and philosophers and scientists in the world at the time. And, ironically, or perhaps not, that's why Saif al-Dawla was remembered. He sponsored the man who is generally considered to be the greatest poet to write in the Arabic language. It's a poet named Al-Mutanabi, who we're going to talk about in just a while. And, of course, Al-Mutanabi was sponsored in order to write poems extolling the virtue and heroism of Saif al-Dawla. Well, although this emir of a city-state might have vanished based on his own accomplishments, he is preserved in literature as a great warrior because of the work that he sponsored. That's really the way that sponsorship of the arts is intended to work, and it really did. Even during this turbulent time, and the even more violent centuries that are going to follow with the arrival of the Crusades, the Islamic arts and sciences would reach a pinnacle Some of the greatest achievements and some of the greatest writers are still yet to come, and they would write in places like Aleppo that were often under siege, that were in a state of great instability. We would see the establishment of the world's first universities, unified national school systems, as well as research hospitals established in these areas that were really in an era of conflict. And I think this is a key point that we can't just look at conquest and wars as being the reason that the fortunes of the Muslim world would change. I mean, yes, they would be subject to some terrible invasions and conquests over the next few centuries, but they managed to flourish during those times and after those times. So if we're looking for why things have changed over a millennium, this is not really the reason that we can look at. And we're going to talk about those reasons, which are a lot more long-term and develop over the centuries. But for now, let's look at what was going on in Aleppo as an example, one of many examples of powerful city-states throughout the Muslim world at this time. As we have discussed in the past, prominent citizens and rulers were expected to maintain circles of intellectuals under their sponsorship to display their influence. Just like in the late 1800s, great industrialists were expected to sponsor universities and concert halls and libraries and put their names on them. Well, this is what you did in the Middle East at this time. These, known as majlises or diwans, were similar in function to the European salons centuries later. These were the places that great intellectuals and also entertainers, some body poets and songwriters could gather and show off their talents. Of course, the most important of these had been at the court of the Khalif in Baghdad. But local rulers were also expected to sponsor their own. Now, among these, Saif Adawla must be counted as a singularly successful judge of talent. If you were going to form a team, this is the guy you would want as your talent scout. Well, undoubtedly, the most famous member of Saif Adawla's circle was the poet El Mutanabi. 
As we said, he's generally considered the best in the Arabic language. Now, his actual family name was El-Kindi, like the great philosopher we have discussed, and he claimed descent from the same Kinda tribe, and he came from the same area of southern Iraq. His father was a water carrier, and this is very common throughout the empire at this time. We have seen a lot of people rise from very humble origins, in fact, very many of them from slave origins, based on their promise. If you had talent, uh, people would see that you had talent and sponsor you. Well, Al-Mutanabi showed very early promise as a wordsmith, as a poet, and poetry was the most valued of all the Arabic arts, going way back to the time before Islam. So, recognizing his promise, he was sponsored through an education in Damascus. Again, that upward mobility was definitely there. So if we just take a moment to look at Al-Mutanabi's early life path, it kind of gives us an idea of what's going on in the empire. And for better or worse, the, the chaos that was going around, the sort of uh, dissolution of strong central power, kind of worked to the advantages of guys like Al-Mutanabi. And although there was a lot of disintegration of central power, there is still one unifying Arab-Muslim culture based on the Arabic language and on Islam that allows you to cross political boundaries from one political state to another. And Al-Mutanabi is a guy whose career really testifies to this. He studied in Damascus because people saw that he had talent. He then joined with a heretical sect known as the Karmatia. Well, this is a sect that combined ideas of Ismailia Shia with Zoroastrianism, and they had led a rebellion against the Abbasids in 899. This was after the anarchy at Samara, but during a time when the Abbasid state was still very weak. And they also had a rebellion from African slaves in southern Iraq at the same time. Well, this distracted the Abbasids long enough that the Karmatia were able to establish their own power base in what is today Bahrain and they controlled much of eastern Arabia. They even sacked the holy city of Mecca. They stole the black stone, which is the foundation of the Kaaba, of the black cube that is there, and they ransomed it, and the Abbasids paid it. So this shows you how much central authority has disintegrated. They were finally defeated, no surprise here, by whom? By a force of Turkish warriors loyal to the Abbasids. But this was almost 70 years after they had established their little state. So again, the Abbasids are growing more and more dependent upon these Turkish warriors. And this also develops a trend that we've talked about and we're going to see getting stronger and stronger, is that the Turks, who are really newcomers to Islam, they're used extensively to crush these sects, particularly Shiite sects, and this helps develop the Turks into being very, very strong Sunnis. And eventually, they're going to be responsible for a huge Sunni revival. Well, El-Mutanabi, this poet, was living amongst the rebels, and he was actually captured trying to lead a rebellion in Syria. As was common at the time, he was given a nickname, or a lakab, 
which is essentially a descriptive name based on something about him. Now, you might not guess it, but Al-Mutanabi was actually a pejorative name. It was sort of a, an insult making fun of him, but it's one that he kept because he liked it. Arabic, of course, is based very strongly on roots. This word is derived from the root nebi, which means prophet. Al-Mutanabi comes from the reflexive, which means one who considers himself a prophet or makes himself into a prophet. Okay, now that, of course, is an insult. But Al-Mutanabi, like many of the great intellectuals of his day, was not the least bit humble. And so he took it as a, an honorific, and he would be known for the rest of his life as Al-Mutanabi. But in any case, we have this guy who is imprisoned for leading a rebellion against the caliphate, who you would think that would probably end his career, if not his life. But this was a turbulent time, and turbulent times can be lucrative for people of talent like al-Mutanabi, particularly as individual rulers who want to boast, they essentially want publicity. They want a public relations man. Well, they didn't have many ways to do that, and one of the best was poetry. If you could get someone to write poems about you or write songs about you and they were good, they would spread and your name would become famous. And the fact that we today remember Saif al-Dawlah for really no other reason than the fact that he's the subject of al-Mutanabi's poetry shows that he made a good investment. Two of the most important types of Arabic poetry are known as Madiya which is essentially boasting poetry, and hijah, which is the opposite. It's insulting poetry. If you're not familiar with Arabic poetry, and particularly during the Islamic age, you might tend to think that it's going to be very religious and very proper, but actually Arabic poetry can get downright nasty. If you think of today where famous rap stars will get up and essentially insult each other, well, this is the same thing that was going on back then. So you would hire a competent poet to write verses boasting about your skill, about how many people you had killed and how you destroyed your rivals and so forth, to write about your sexual prowess. And you would also hire them to essentially trash your enemies, to talk about how weak they were and how they were cowards and so forth. And this is essentially what al-Mutanabi did for Saif al-Dawla. So, even though he was in prison, word of his skill spread, and Saif al decided that he wanted this guy. Turns out to be a really good investment. But lest we think that al-Mutanabi's position was safe just because he had found a patron, well, the back-and-forth attacks between rivals and between poets attacking each other uh, could get pretty vicious. In fact, there was a lot of scheming and intriguing going on within the majlis, and El-Mutanabi, uh, he seems to be right in the thick of it. So although he did some of his best work for Saif Adawla, uh, he would get fired, he would get banished, and he would have rivals out to kill him, and it would actually be one of his rivals who would run into him while he was traveling from one city from which he had been banished to another and killed him because of what he had written. So it gives you an idea of how vicious these things could get. But it doesn't seem like Al-Mutanabi shied away from that. It seems like he really got into the scheming and intrigue of the Mejlis. His best-known verse of poetry, which 
most Arab kids will memorize is Ida Raita Nayuba Laith Barizatin Falatodun in Laith Yabtesim. And that means if you see the lion bearing its fangs, don't assume that the lion is smiling, meaning, you know, watch your back. And he was referring to himself there and the fact that he could take down his rivals. And of course, it eventually went against him. Yet one great poet was not enough for Saif His court was home to another of the great classical poets, Abu Faras al-Hamdani, who was a cousin of his because they have the same name. Uh, one of his greatest works is a praise poem called the Hamdaniya, and that means it's referring to the Hamdani family of which they both belong. Now, he was also known to write works against the Abbasids, which testifies to how much the power of the caliphate had disintegrated. Nonetheless, his most famous work is a collection of poems called the Rumiyat, written during the six years he was imprisoned by the Byzantines during the continuous wars. So as we can see, the conflicts of the day did not forestall the growth of the arts, and they didn't make it safe to be a poet. Well, Saif Adaula was not content only to host poets in his medjlis. Another member of his intellectual circle was a philosopher of such renown that he is known as the second teacher or the second master in Arabic. The first teacher always refers to Aristotle, and the first master, when that term is used, usually refers to Al-Kindi, who we've discussed as the philosopher of the Arabs or the first great Arab uh, philosopher. So it's no small significance here that Al-Farabi, who was, above all, a man who reconciled different schools of thought, is considered the intellectual successor to both Aristotle and Al-Kindi, the first great Arab philosopher. Now, unfortunately for him, Al-Farabi would tend to be overshadowed by the next philosopher to come about, and that was about a century later, Ibn Sina, who we'll talk about in greater detail, who is generally seen as the greatest medieval Arab philosopher, probably the greatest medieval philosopher of them all. But nonetheless, Al-Farabi was an important link in a tradition that continues through to Ibn Sina. Now again, remember what we're talking about, that such a significant intellectual figure is working at the same court as Al-Mutanabi, probably the greatest poet in the Arabic language, and some other great poets, all working for an emir of a city-state of Aleppo. So this shows you how much power could be concentrated in one area. A good ruler, like Saif al a guy who had a good sense for talent, could grab a lot of these people. They could do some great works. Of course, they would dedicate them all to him, and his name would be known to us. I mean, how many other rulers of city-states do we know from this time period? As is common, unfortunately, with a great number of intellectual figures, uh, very little is known about the early life of this man, Abu Nasr Muhammad ibn Muhammad al-Farabi. But this in itself is kind of significant because he's one of many scholars, again, who rises from very humble origins. He received a sponsored education. People recognize his talent, paid for him to study, uh, he was adopted into powerful circles, and as his 
fame grew. He would move up to higher and higher levels. And based on his talent and also his maneuvering and his intrigue, he would rise to the court of someone like Saif al So it was something like a meritocracy, but it also involves a lot of scheming. The only thing we can gather from his name, and again, this is largely speculation, this indicates he was probably born in what is present-day Kazakhstan or Afghanistan, about the 870s, about the same time that Al-Kindi died. So even today, we don't really know what ethnicity he might have been, but we do know that he spent most of his life in Baghdad and in Syria, and he wrote in Arabic. Though he may have been from Central Asia, he could travel throughout the Muslim empire, settle where it was lucrative for him, and he wrote in Arabic, focused largely on Islam. And that would be the same for people coming from Spain, coming from Persia, and so on. Well, although we know Al-Farabi was Muslim, there has been some speculation among scholars whether he was Shiite, or at least had some Shiite influences. Now, this is about the time where Shiism is really beginning to form into a solid identity. You know, we've talked a lot in the past about how the the Sunni and Shia have split, but it's not really become a formal, official split. That happens about 940 A.D. So we're about the time when this is happening. So it is quite common that a man like Al-Farabi even if he was not Shiite, would have some Shiite influences. We definitely know that he studied under a Christian, Yuhana ibn Haylan, and that his leading student, really his successor, his protege, was another Christian, Yahya ibn Adi. And Al-Farabi's work would later be prized by Latin Christian and Jewish scholars, and he would go on to have a big influence on them. His primary source materials also seem to have come from Christian centers in Syria as well as from Alexandria in Egypt. So this tells us we're not dealing with someone who's a very narrow, sectarian, religious thinker. In fact, there seems to be very strong interchange between Christian and Islamic thinkers. doesn't seem like he is preferencing one over the other. They're able to work together. And in fact, his project was one of applying classical Greek logic to questions of being and showing how these supported the idea of a unitary essence or first cause, which of course he identifies with God, but it's based on bringing the Greek classical knowledge together with Islamic monotheistic ideas. So again, as we always say, we have to consider this against what's going on in the rest of the world. Okay. He served a master, Saif Adawla, who was constantly at war with Byzantine Christians. Cousin is imprisoned by them for six years. They've ransacked and sacked his city occasionally. At a time when the Islamic Empire is divided by Sunni-Shia conflicts, such as the Karmati Rebellion, which Al-Mutanabi was a part of, his patron in Aleppo was a Shiite, Saif Adawla, but he spent most of his time in Sunni Baghdad, and despite the bitter and violent conflict that is going on between these factions, the intellectual exchange 
was still very productive, and there seems to be a high amount of respect between them. And so we're not talking about the kind of demonization that we see today, where you characterize your rivals, your opponents, as being evil, of being of, of the devil. And that, of course, goes both ways, from Muslim to Christian and the other way around. So simplistic ideas of a clash of civilizations, they don't really hold up when we look in detail. Yes, there was a lot of fighting going on, but most of it seems to be politically motivated. And as we're going to see, particularly in examples when we talk about the Crusades, we will see Muslim and Christian armies allied against other Muslim and Christian armies because it was to their advantage. the ideas of Al-Farabi. Al-Farabi wrote on a number of subjects. He wrote about alchemy, he wrote about physics, he wrote about the science of vacuums, he wrote about logic, and some of his later works in philosophy would look at what we would now today call social sciences. So he begins to develop theories of the ideal community and how people should act and how they should be governed in these communities. So he made a huge contribution over a wide range of subjects, and this was quite typical of philosophers at the time. But a key part of Al-Farabi's philosophy, and this was really a goal of all the great Islamic philosophers, was to be able to reconcile the ideas of the classical Greeks, particularly Aristotle, who of course was the, the first teacher, he was the greatest of the philosophers, but he tried to reconcile Aristotle and Plato, and then, of course, reconcile this with Islam. And this is very important because this basically is successful, will open the gateway for all of these classical sciences, all of the Greek knowledge, which is really the, the key base of knowledge in the society at this time, to be used by the Muslims to show that it's all okay. And despite the fact that this stuff was written by people who were essentially pagans, uh, they didn't know the prophets, they weren't even people of the book, he wanted to show that this could be used. Well, this is not an easy task, because Aristotle does have a theory of the cosmos, how the world works, and how it was created, and it is different on the surface from what Islam is teaching, and so he has to reconcile these, and this is really the big project that he is famous for. So. Al-Farabi begins with Aristotle's theory of causation, and this is what is going to be the basis for everything that follows. Now, Aristotle said that everything has a cause. There's a reason why things happen, but that obviously you couldn't carry this back forever. Obviously, if one thing was caused by another thing, you'd have an infinite regression. We'd just keep going on and we'd never get back to the original cause. So logic dictated, at least to him, that there had to be an ultimate cause, a first cause for everything. And this is not based on a revelation from God, this is based on his version of logic. And this is essentially the same argument that is used today by the proponents of intelligent design. The assumption that there must be a cause for the things that we see. Well, so Al-Farabi takes this as his basis, and so even though Aristotle is not using the word God, when you talk about the first cause, 
the thing that must set everything else in motion and creates the world around us, well, that sounds close enough to him, like God, to assume that Aristotle is referring to God, even if he doesn't know that he's referring to God. So he therefore finds the basic idea of Aristotle's creation of the world to be compatible with Islam. Well, once you do that, then you can go ahead and analyze everything else and incorporate that. So Aristotle has a what seems to us a very strange idea of cosmology today. He believes the world, with the Earth as the center, is surrounded by several spheres. And this is because you could look into the sky, you could see there were stars, you could see there were planets, and you could easily enough see that these were at different distances from the Earth. So he went with the simplest explanation, and that is to say that there were several different spheres essentially shells of space around the Earth and that the planets and the stars were embedded in these and the ones that were further away were in the furthest shells. And so the idea was that the ultimate cause, the first cause, which we're going to say is God, is outside the furthest level and it causes the things on the outer sphere which cause things on the inner sphere, and this is how we get down to Earth. So far, no problem, really. Now, one of the most difficult concepts in Aristotle, and this is one that is still debated by philosophers today, people are still writing books about it to try and analyze it, is Aristotle's concept of the intellect. And that is, how do we have this capacity to understand things, to appreciate things, this concept of rationality that humans have, Where does it come from? And he's facing several different problems with it, like why isn't everyone born with it to the same degree? Why does it take time to develop? Why do some people have it to a greater degree than others? Well, Aristotle's explanation from this is very different from the one that modern neuroscience would give us that says essentially that the intellect, the mind, is something that develops from the inside. Aristotle is going to tie this whole thing to his concept of the cosmos and the first cause, but even then it's not clear exactly what he means, and this is because his explanation of the intellect is not clear, it's not consistent, he contradicts himself from time to time, and that's why people are still trying to figure out exactly what he meant. Well, Al-Farabi thought he had the idea, and so he developed a very detailed explanation of how the intellect worked, and he felt that he brought together the ideas of Aristotle and Plato together in a very satisfactory fashion. And in fact, the philosopher who would follow Al-Farabi, probably the greatest mind of the uh, Islamic Golden Age, Ibn Sina, would say that he never understood Plato until he read the interpretation of him from Al-Farabi. Now, of course, this is not a philosophy show, and I am not a expert in philosophy, so I'm going to do a very rough version of this and would probably horrify any professional philosopher who were to listen to it, but just to give an idea of the scope of what Al-Farabi is talking about and what he's trying to reconcile. First thing we have to recognize is that in the Greek system, the intellect was considered like a sense. We have a sense of smell, we have a sense of sight, 
sound, and so on. Well, to them, the intellect was one of these senses. And the idea was that we could recognize and comprehend ideas. Just like you could look at something and see it or hear it, you could understand it. Another concept that is very important for the Greeks is the ideas were real. These were actual things that existed and that we could perceive them and we'd apprehend them at certain times. We think of the typical example of Archimedes. When he goes into the bathtub, he gets the idea of buoyancy and he has the famous quote, he says, Eureka, which means I found it. The idea that the concept was always there, he just didn't know about it. Well, today we would look at it from a scientific perspective and say that the idea develops in your own mind. Well, this is not the way the Greeks looked at it. They thought that the ideas were really out there just the same way that objects are out there and you can see them, you can hear them, and so forth. Well, the same thing with ideas. And this is especially true with Plato. Uh, Plato even has this most famous concept is that of the ideals. His concept is that there is a perfect version of every concept we have on earth. So like there's a perfect example of beauty, of freedom. There is a perfect example of redness, of blackness, and so forth. And in his version, these exist in heaven on pedestals. And everything we have on earth is just a shadow of that. We don't have perfect beauty, but it really exists. So with this in mind, Al-Farabi has got to try and reconcile this with what he knows from observation about psychology, about how the human mind works, and with Islam. And so he's going to try and clarify what is essentially unclear in Aristotle. So he comes up with a refined concept of the intellect. This is a very tough concept to explain, and part of the reason is because the word that he's using here, intellect, al-aql, that is the correct translation of it, but he doesn't mean intellect in the sense that we do. For us, intellect is something that is definitely internal. It's something that you have. It's not something external to you. Well, when they're using it, they mean it in both senses. So there is the sense of what they call the passive intellect. And this is the potential ability to sense things. For example, and he always uses an analogy to the other senses. How does it work with sight? How does it work with sound? Well, we have the potential to see things. But if we put you in a dark room, there may be a lot of objects in there that you could potentially see, but you're not going to see any of them without any light. We let sunlight come in, and now you can actually see those objects. So his explanation for this is you have a potential for sight. You have a potential for sound. You have potentials for smell. But it's not until something activates that that you can actually use that. And for him, the thing that activates it is light. Now, this is really a strange way to approach this problem. But he's trying to explain how intellect works and square this with Islam monotheism, the idea where everything is a gift from God. Well, he's able to do this by using Aristotle. So Aristotle believed there was something he called the active intellect. And this, Al-Farabi is going to define essentially as that thing 
that illuminates, that activates your potential intellect. This is essentially doing the job that light does for sight, this does for your intellect. And so this explains why you're born not knowing a whole lot of things. As you grow up, suddenly ideas that other people have, that maybe others have understood, suddenly you have that eureka moment and they come to you. And so what is it? There's this idea out there, but we can't perceive it until something activates it. And this is, well, it's one interpretation of what Aristotle was referring to as the active intellect. And that's what Al-Farabi is going to say. So there is something out there, there's a force that basically enlightens us, that allows us to perceive these ideas. Now, this sounds a little bit strange to us today, but we have to bear in mind that this was very compatible with philosophy as they knew it. He's always got this first cause out there which he equates with God. Well, if there's something out there in the cosmos that activates our intellect, that is basically the light of our intellect, well, where did that come from? It has to come from this first cause. Now, Farabi takes a fairly unusual step, which other people would not agree with, to relate this directly to the cosmos as Aristotle has it with his different spheres. So he says that the first cause, i.e. God, who's out there, creates the first intellect. He's referring to this source that can illuminate knowledge for us. That illuminates an intellect on the, the outer level, and for them the outer level was where all the stars are, and then it goes through the inner levels. Now, interestingly, they believe that one planet was at each of the different levels. The furthest planet they could see back then was Saturn. So Saturn was on the outer level and you worked your way all the way into Earth. And essentially the one that is closest to us is the moon. And so the moon is the thing that is activating our intellect. Now again, it sounds like a very strange concept to us, but what he's doing here is finding a way to take Aristotle's whole cosmology which is his theory of how the world works, and say, look, it's really okay, it's compatible with Islam, because you have a, a first cause, which is your creator, and that is the source of all knowledge. That's what teaches us, that's what enlightens us, that sounds like what God does. Once we've done that, and essentially squared this up, and he does it in extreme detail, uh, Farabi loves lists, so he loves to break the intellect down into several different parts, but once he's felt like he has nailed this, then we can go ahead and say, okay, the whole body of Greek knowledge is now fair game to use. And that's important because they have, up to this point, the best medicine, the best optics, they have works on astrology and so forth, and we can use all of that. For example, you know, religion talks a lot about the soul. You look at the Bible, the Quran, souls are very important. Well, how does he square this with it? Well, having described this concept of the intellect, he believes that is what continues after we die. And in fact, Al-Farabi breaks the intellect down into four parts. Appetite is one of the parts. And the rational component of the intellect is one of the four parts. This is the part of the soul that exists when the body no longer exists. And how does he do that? 
Well, he's able to say, having positive this active intellect that's out there, the sort of the light that activates our own thinking, well, that's out there in the cosmos. And so, since humans are the only animals that have this rationality, well, we know it's not something that is strictly limited to the body. So, therefore, the rational part of the soul, in his mind, exists between the, the level of Earth the human level, the level of the body that all the animals have, and this higher level that is activated by the intellect. So therefore he's able to say, well that's what the soul is. That's what continues when you die. Now we can look at this and say that it's strange, but what he's doing is taking science as it was known at the time, and then taking a very spiritual concept, something like the soul. I mean, this is almost a mystical thing that we would say you can't understand and say, well, yes it is, it really corresponds to the rational faculty in your intellect. And he's already made the case that that is connected to the greater cosmos. So, for example, what does he do? One of his greatest works is El Medinat al Fadl, and this means the, the best city, uh, the most virtuous city, and this is largely based on Plato's Republic, but this is where Al-Farabi, having shown the usefulness of Greek philosophy, is now going to use this to describe what is the ideal state, or what should be the ideal community and government. And it would not be a surprise that when he applies the principles of Plato's Republic, the ideas of social sciences from the Greeks, he comes to the conclusion that the ideal state was actually the community of Medina during the time that it was ruled by the Prophet Muhammad, and he's able to show this. Again, the idea of showing that, hey, what we have here in Islam corresponds to what the great Greek philosophers had, and it's really even better. He believed that the, the Greeks had their time, they had spent themselves, they did great work, but now their era was over, and he definitely believed that Islamic civilization was the true inheritor of this classical knowledge, and that they were now at the forefront, both because of what they were doing scientifically, but because of the revelation that God had given them. So he goes on to write, it's in physics, a, a detailed explanation of the vacuum. Uh, now, he determines that a vacuum is impossible. We know that it isn't, but based on the experiments that he could do, that's what he did. He wrote a lot about logic and the idea of proofs. He actually wrote commentaries on music, and he's very famous for his book, which is translated today as Social Psychology, which is one of the earliest books to write about sociology. And his point is that an individual living by himself can never achieve perfection, can never achieve the highest state of, of virtue, of morality, that you need other individuals, you need this virtuous community. And then of course he goes into write in great detail about how that community should be organized. It will not surprise you that he uses uh, the community of Medina under the prophet as an example for this. So we have this wonderful work that is done by this great philosopher, very deep work. It's on the cutting edge of philosophy at the time, and he's doing this in the service of the essentially military governor, prince of a small city-state in northern Syria, Saif al-Dawla. 
who is the same guy who is paying the greatest poet probably in the Arabic language and is paying a lot of other people at the same time that Saif al-Dawlah is out leading several military campaigns against the Byzantines. He's fighting, he's winning and losing, his city is getting captured, it's getting ransacked, he captures it back again, but he still has time to sponsor people like al-Farabi who is busy writing about the nature of the cosmos and the idea of the human intellect can be squared with the eternal soul and the the planets and the, the causes of the universe. I mean, at the same time, they're essentially out fighting for their lives. And so we get a picture, really, of uh, Aleppo is not the typical city. It's really the, the pinnacle. It's the one that really hits it best. But the idea of what's going on in these Islamic city-states at the time, I mean, other rulers would be doing the same thing. If you were a Muslim prince, uh, you would be expected to have a diwan. You would be expected to sponsor poets and musicians. You would be and debates, and you, know, you would be expected to have Christians and Muslims coming in and debating their faith. You would be expected to uh, sponsor scientific works, and it's going on in a time of great turmoil. Central authority has really fallen apart physical war between Muslims and Christians is going on at a fever pace, but at the same time there's still philosophical collaboration and discussion going on. So, so many of the sort of Islamist visions that we see today sort of talk about a, an inevitable clash of civilizations, that there's an inherent animosity between Christians and Muslims, or try and tell us that Islam is inherently biased against science and logic. I mean, you, you just absolutely cannot justify that by looking at the truth. And the fact is, even while political and military conflict is raging, much more than it is today, social cooperation, intellectual co cooperation, scientific cooperation, it is still going on, and I think this gives us a good example. And again, as we said at the beginning of the story, when we contrast sort of the glory days of Aleppo with what is happening, the tragedy that is unfolding in this city now through the Assyrian civil war, we see a huge contrast. And I think it is just too simplistic to try and attribute what we see going on today uh, with some internal flaw, some eternal problem with Islam. It's simply not possible. History disproves that. Well, what will explain the eventual decline of Islamic civilization? I hope you'll stay with us over the future episodes when we begin to talk about how this great civilization begins to change. So what is it that will eventually bring this down? Well, You've probably figured out by now, it's not going to be a simple answer. It's not going to be one that we can do in one episode. But if you stay with us, we will continue to explore this and see what happens. Again, thank you so much for your kind attention. Thank you for your comments. We hope you'll see us next time. Shukran jazilan wa ma salam.